Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to this week's podcast of Breaking Their Wall in Music. And thank you for coming back. We're still in season two and we'll stay there for a little bit of time. But this week I have a new friend and guest, Shayla. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi. So thank you, Tara. I'm Shayla. I'm a music education major right now at LIU Post. Uh, I'm actually a recovering leukemia patient. In 2019, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and I'm still undergoing treatment. I'll be, I've been really, really great with all my treatment. I've had a ton of ups and downs, but that's common with treatment. But as far as I know, I will be considered cured by next summer. But there's a lot of great things that happened that have really set my path for the present and what I want to do after having gone through cancer. One of them being, I absolutely am set on being a music therapist when I get out of my undergraduate. So at the moment, I'm studying music education. That was always what I wanted to do when I was younger. I love playing the French horn. That's my primary. I love playing trumpet, not as much as French horn. Anybody who plays French horn will always put it on top. It's such a beautiful instrument. Um, but yeah, I always wanted to just connect with people. Spanish is my first language. So my plan was to like teach in Spanish, teach to those communities that don't often get touched by music education. And then just that, that would be my life. But in 2019, everything changed. My worldview became very, very different. My life revolved around going to the cancer clinic. And there I met a woman named Christine. She was the music therapist there. And what she did just absolutely, I became like wide-eyed. Like when I saw my first official concert, it was just that moment where I was like, this is what I want to do. I saw her. She was playing acoustic guitar to the children while they were getting blood drawn from them. Now these children, they're there. They don't really, they don't understand what's happening to them. They're they feel sick, they don't feel themselves, they're angry, they're upset, they're constantly being taken to this place. And they do, they know they have cancer, but they're not at an age yet where it can be broken down to terms that they can understand. But they just know that it hurts. All they understand from it is that it's painful. This place they associate with pain, and whatever the heck is wrong with them. And it broke my heart. But seeing her playing acoustic to these children to calm them down enough for the nurses and doctors to be able to do their job it's just like oh my goodness this is exactly what I want to do I always wanted to reach out to people but this way after having gone through the treatment and the pain myself that's that's what I want to do it's it's beautiful do you want to say something no, I was going to say that's super cool. Um, I love music therapy. And as an aspiring music psychologist, music therapy is very heavily related to music psychology in a lot of ways. So super cool stuff in that in itself. <laughs> um, I find it really interesting that like music therapists are able to like not only have their own private practice, but also like go to a hospital and work in a hospital and other assortments of jobs. Is that specifically what you would want to do is work in a hospital? Yes. So when I was, a lot of my treatment actually did happen in hospitals because I would have to be in the hospital for days at a time to receive about, I don't even know if like 
if I could describe it in two words, the size of the bag of chemotherapy looked like a giant bag of apple juice. And they'd have to cover it in like this black bag, another black bag and a big yellow sticker that said chemotherapy. Like it, whatever the heck it was, it was toxic and it was going to go into me. And I'm like, oh, great. But the music therapist would come in. Now, anybody who gets frequent chemotherapy, sometimes they have a metaport installed into their chest right around this area of my right, um, around the right area of my chest. There's like a little scar. It's about the size of a checker piece and a one inch needle goes inside. Now that's freaky to imagine a needle going inside your chest. It's connected to my heart. And that's how I received my chemotherapy. Now it might sound barbaric in a way, but it's actually a very convenient thing because when the procedure was being described to me, I was told that this metaport would prevent me from having to get constant Benny punctures because you get chemo so frequently by the time you, your elbow has healed from your previous Benny puncture, you have to get another one. Sometimes you need to go multiple times a week. I remember having to go multiple times a week and every single time they need to check blood, make sure that you're good to get your chemo because if your blood counts aren't good enough, the chemo could hurt you more than it could help you. Now chemo already hurts you, but it would be so much worse if your blood counts are not at a certain point. But I remember before going into this procedure to get my metaport and to get my metaport in, the music therapist was there and I was freaking out because the first time I was ever in the hospital was after my diagnosis. I had never broken a bone, knocking on wood here. I had never gotten any major injury that required me to go to the hospital. So to be there for the first time with cancer, I was freaking out. And you can't have a freaking quivering teenager. I was 18 years old. Can't have a quivering teenager on the bed right before they knock out. That's not good, especially if you're going to basically be operating on their heart. But the music therapist there, she had a rain stick. She had her acoustic. And she just basically just kept playing it. And they told me to count down. And I calmed down enough for them to do what they had to do and they sedated me and I fell asleep and then I woke up and now I have this new thing sticking out of my chest but for now I've never had to get another venipuncture so it's like the fact that even though I was aware of what the music and what the rain stick was supposed to do it still had an effect on me you would think that like I would try to outsmart it and be like, no, I'm still going to freak out. You're, you're not going to play these games with me. No, 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 no. It worked. It was, and when I woke up and I came to after the whole loopy part of coming out of sedatives, uh, it was incredible. I was like, oh my gosh, she calmed me down. How'd you do that? And that kind of work just seems so rewarding because it connects with the patient on a deeper level than just healing them. It's like a big mental, personal thing, an emotional thing, because it was, it hadn't even been 24 hours after my diagnosis and I had to get this surgery. So I was so incredibly emotional from it. I was crying. Oh my gosh. I, my eyes, they were like almost bulging out of my head. I was crying so much from just the aftermath of that kind of news. But just for that brief moment, she was able to calm me down for long enough so that I could be put to sleep. 
And I'm like, wow, wow. It blows my mind. And that's something I am so, I absolutely want to study. Like, how does that happen? Even with the smartest individuals who are so aware of what music is and the effects it has on the mind, how it can still affect them on that level. Isn't it crazy? Yes. And um, I actually, before I'm going into my master's, I actually took a whole class in music psychology and it talks a lot about how music is used to heal people. And this has to do with the way that like we perceive music and we perceive sound and rhythm Um, and like certain rhythms, like there's this awesome book that I read. It's called Music and Miracles. And it's so, it's such a good book recommended to literally anyone. Um, and there's this book to where they were talking about this, um, this, this gentleman who had tremors and they essentially, what they did was, is they did a traditional type of um, Chinese Tai Chi drumming and his tremors stopped for like 15 minutes. And there was like another story in that book too, where they were talking about like, um, essentially like this, I think, it, I can't remember if it was a man or a woman, but they were passing, they were actually dying and they used music to calm them down and they basically calmly died. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of the stuff that I absolutely want to study once I'm finished with my music education bachelor because another thing that I feel like me having gone through the whole leukemia treatment process is that I feel like I'm very articulate about my experience with it and I can use that for future patients so I feel like I have a unique advantage to be able to help now I'm not I never want to compare my experience to a future patient, but I want to at least be able to reach out and say, hey, I know what it's like. Even if they have a more drastic cancer or a less drastic cancer than mine, I can at least say like, at some point in some way, I've been in your shoes because some doctors are so incredibly unempathetic, unsympathetic, They are so out of touch with reality. All they know are their textbooks and just they have no bedside matter. It was so degrading to me, I remember, because I remember people would be sent into my room to observe me. I was in a learning hospital. I felt like a zoo creature. It was very cruel. And whenever somebody would come in and say like, hey, Shayla, why don't you leave your room for a little bit? You seem bummed. And I'm like, well, I'm in the hospital. I'm bald with cancer. And all those learning doctors outside look at me like I'm a dead man walking. Forgive me if I'm not clicking my heels. Giddy. Yes, I will appear a little bit bummed. It's just, why can't, why couldn't they put those pieces together? I thought to myself, it's just. I don't understand why they would even say anything like that to you anyway. It's, you know, it's kind of like you said, it's really unempathetic. And it's like, um, imagine a, a, you at the time you were a young adult, we still are young adults, just a young adult finding out you have cancer and you're just like, what do I do? I'm in this hospital, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, it takes not even 10 seconds to piece together of course I'm not going to be happy of course I'm not going to be happy so forgive me for not wanting to leave my room 
I hate this room to begin with. So, but back to the music therapy thing. Even after that initial procedure, music therapy still became a recurring thing because I frequently had to get spinal taps just as a regular checkup thing of treatment. And lucky for me, I was in pediatrics, so I got to be knocked out for uh, my spinal taps. I know I've heard of adults who are in the adult ward. They don't get the, they're not lucky enough to get knocked out for the spinal taps. They have to be awake for that whole thing. And I, I feel so terrible for them. But for me, at least, when I'm in the position, basically, I lay on my side like a dead fish. And I wait for them to tell me to start counting down. But even before the whole sedation thing, they need to access the port. Now, the port, you can't feel it right now on my skin. It is underneath my skin. There, It is completely healed over at the moment. They always need to put in a new needle whenever I need to get sedated or receive my chemotherapy. Now, this process to get the needle inside is a little freaky. I have to lay flat on my back, put my shoulders back, and basically the port sticks out of my skin. You can see it from underneath my skin. There are these three little bumps on it, and the nurses have to press around with their thumbs and try to feel the center of the three bumps. And that center, that's where the needle should go. But it's like, it's scary. I have to lay flat to feel around to hopefully, 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 I'm putting so much trust in the nurse that they're feeling the bumps right and that they'll get the needle in and I freak out sometimes when I do especially when they first started doing it because it's just like imagine just imagine that now they give me a cream so that I don't feel the needle going in but if they miss I feel it I've I've had nurses who've missed and damn it hurts damn it hurts and after they missed the first time you freak out way more every moment, every single time you have to get the needle ac- the port accessed after that. But I can always rely on the music therapist to come with her rain stick, come with her tambourine, come with her acoustic. She tells me to close my eyes. She tells me to look at the wall. And I'm just forgetting. I'm forgetting that I am getting my port accessed. I don't even feel the hand on my body. I feel like I'm somewhere else. The rain stick makes me feel like I'm at the beach. I'm just listening to waves. And then I know I get pulled out back into reality because when they put, when they push saline in, I can actually taste it. It's a very funny thing about people with ports. When you push whatever medicine is inside, you can get like an aftertaste of whatever the heck they put. So I get like a funny taste of alcohol, uh, the saline, it's like, it tastes like bad breath, at least to me. Saline tastes like bad breath to me. But once I feel that, I'm like, wait, I'm done. I did it. And this happens every time. And I've gotten at least 30 spinal taps since my diagnosis. And it's never failed. It's never failed. So it's like, even though at this point, I should like have, I guess you could say like a tolerance to the music therapy. It shouldn't affect me as much because I've done it so many times. It doesn't, it hasn't. In fact, I look forward to it. And I feel like that's another thing that music therapy is different than other therapies. It's like, it doesn't feel like therapy. That's what I love about it. It just feels like a completely natural reaction. 
And that's what I really like about it because I know a lot of people are against traditional methods of therapy, like speaking therapy or physical therapy, where it feels you're reminded that you're sick when you are in those therapies. But music therapy, the reaction that comes out is natural. And you feel like you are capable of having this type of reaction and that it wasn't fished out of you from other methods. It's okay. Um, essentially what I was saying was like, um, like that has to do with the way that like sound and rhythm and certain sounds affect our brain. There's been a lot of research about it and it's like, they target specific regions of our brains. They create like hormones that go through our bodies. And it's just like a completely natural reaction, which is why music therapy is so awesome. And why so many people are confused. It's like, I can just play a drone and you're calm. And a lot of people are like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And Uh, it has to do with the way that it stimulates the brain. It's so, it's so great. I love it so much. Just, I can't wait to be able to study it and just get myself out there because I feel like I have such an arsenal of information and experience that I can use in that field. And from what I know, music therapy is growing. It's growing so much because unfortunately with the coronavirus pandemic, we are in a mental health crisis. And I feel like not every person who has been affected by this pandemic which is basically everybody in the world I don't think everybody who will seek out help for their mental health will want traditional therapy they might look look for other ways to feel better and music therapy could be one of those things that could be offered to somebody who's seeking help in I don't even want to say the future because it's in the present Well, it's interesting because it's like in a lot of ways, those certain types of therapies like music therapy isn't super accessible, but in other ways, maybe the pandemic will actually make it more accessible. Because those kinds of jobs will be in demand. Mm -hmm. Any kind of therapy job, people will need, people need help. I don't want to say will need, they do need help. We are in a mental health crisis. And I feel like I've been able to handle the pandemic so well is through my own experience with music therapy and through my own practice, because music really is just healing. It's something so incredible. I guess that's just my personal connection to it, but listening, listening to music, it reminds you, it takes you to different places. It makes you feel like you're not in the present. You're not in this crap pandemic. It is 2010. And you are at the beach where nobody has to wear their masks and nobody is, the coronavirus does not exist. It just takes you back for that moment for 10 seconds. And those 10 seconds can get you through a whole day of the present. I would agree. <laughs> I don't know what else to say other than that because it was just so perfectly said. Thank you. <laughs> no it's just yeah crazy so yeah I really just can't wait to continue and I I want to thank Christine who works at NYU Langone uh NYU Cancer Center for Kids because she's been 
my absolute inspiration to continue this. She would tell me of her own personal experiences with music therapy and how she does it and how she's basically, she basically gave me her roadmap to where she is today. And I'm following every single step that she's giving me because I just, I want to do what she does so badly. I, I'd love to work in particularly in a hospital because I know what it what it's like to be in the hospital for days at a time. And I had limited guests. I could only have one parent in at a time because of the pandemic. So I couldn't have my friends with me. I couldn't have my siblings with me. It was just my mom and my dad or my dad, not even both of them in that once. So to that kid who might be in the future, who might be by themselves in the hospital room, I want to be that person who can help them, who doesn't, I don't want them to feel like I'm poking and prodding in their personal business, ready to diagnose them with every which thing, because I felt like the term depression was thrown around too much when I was in the hospital. I was, I've been on and off antidepressants because of my time in a hospital, but it really was just, in my opinion, I was in funks, but I, it was labeled as depression. And it's just unfortunate. It's just, I felt like those diagnoses or diagnoses, I don't, I don't know the plural of diagnosis, but those were caused by the lack of empathy of the doctors because all they saw was a girl who wouldn't leave her room, who wouldn't do anything, who wouldn't participate in any of the activities that were given to them. But had they thought for just a brief moment, maybe I'm not using the coloring books that they gave me because if they just rubbed their brain cells together for a moment, they'd know that one of the most common side effects of chemotherapy is loss of sense in fingertips. So how am I supposed to use your coloring book? How am I supposed to hold a pencil? I can't open my water bottle, let alone hold a pencil. But they just said, she's depressed. Give her Lexapro. In general, a lot of doctors misdiagnose, especially women with depression, mm-hmm. and it's really not good. And especially in the situation that you were in, it wasn't clearly wasn't depression. It was genuinely like you were going through these things and you're experiencing the side effects of the chemo and your other experiences, plus the doctors is used to just not being empathetic, which I don't know what they expected you to do if you can't feel your hands. I know when I can't feel my hands, if that's ever happened to me before, if I do, I don't remember. I would probably have a hard time holding things too, even if I didn't have that experience. Yeah, I always needed somebody to like open my water bottles. I couldn't write. I couldn't practice my French horn. And I feel like that's when I was like the most upset. I couldn't play my instrument. That was my whole identity, being a horn player. I associate so much of myself with my instrument. Freaking when I was younger, I had such an awful stutter, but on my instruments, I produced clarity. I produced noise and people listened. I wasn't the you, um, when, um, I, um, she, um, 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 I wasn't that kid when I played French horn. I was articulate. I was great. I still, I'm confident in my abilities to play French horn. And that confidence in myself began 
with my confidence on my instrument. So when I lost that, I felt like I almost regressed in a way. So I feel like instrumentalists also have their own form of music therapy or music psychology and how they associate themselves with their instruments. Everyone identifies with their instrument, even if they're a vocalist as well. It's not just instruments. Everyone identifies. Uh, Have you ever met somebody who has like a completely different voice than their speaking voice? That's because I feel like everyone has a separate identity with themselves and their instrument and the two merge with each other as you improve on that instrument. So like my next question is, is like, you know, you talked about how like chemo and all those other things affected your ability to perform with your instrument. And even I'm sure now coming back to your instrument, how did that affect you? And were there any accommodations that you had to make for yourself in order to play or? So getting back into playing my instrument, it was hard because number one, I was scared of my instrument because a bra- it's a brass instrument. So it's like a walking sack of germs. So I was afraid to even put my lips on my mouthpiece because I was like, is there something swimming in here that could get me sick? Because I was immunocompromised. But it's like, it's my French horn. It's supposed to be the thing that I can always feel safe with. And French horn is around like eight feet of tubes. Now with somebody who had, number one, was completely out of practice. It had been almost a year since I had played for more than a while. I had just thrown myself back into a rehearsal. I would pick up my horn every once in a while for like less than five minutes, get winded and quit. Then I had to go to a rehearsal one day. I said like, my blood counts were good that day. My doctor said I could go as long as I wear a mask. So I said, like, yeah, I, I want to play my French horn. And when I got there and I was playing for more than 10 minutes, I would breathe very hard. I would hold my chest. I'm like, this is very different. And I also, my embouchure hadn't changed a lot, surprisingly. I still had intonation and I still had, um, my intonation was fine. It's my breath support where I suffered a lot because I guess when I was just on my bed or sitting in a chair all the time it's just I didn't really give my lungs those chances to expand the way I would when I'd sit with proper posture when I was on the horn it's like my body had gotten accustomed to being super duper slouched and even scrunched in a ball because that's the hurling position if you know anybody who's been through chemotherapy they they vomit a lot So I was often hunched over a garbage can or a toilet. And I guess I just got used to that. So at first I was really disappointed in myself. I was like, oh my gosh, how could I? How could I let myself get so out of practice? But then I had to remember, Shayla, you had cancer. I I was trying to hold myself to the same standard that I would before I got sick. And it took me a while after that day to begin to cut myself some slack to remind myself like hey you are absolutely valuable as a person and as a French horn player but you are out of practice and it's not because you were lazy and it's not because you chose not to do it it's because you couldn't there was you just simply couldn't 
and it's just time to get back into the swing of things. Now, as for accommodations, I could tell that I wasn't asked by my conductor to do a lot of like solely work because I was the only French horn in the ensemble at the time. So whenever he wanted to hear a French horn part, I, we had those moments of eye contact where it was like, I'll get it eventually. Just don't ask me to do it right now. And I appreciate him for being able to understand my my body language and my eye contact with them. And eventually I did get it. And as we got through that concert season, I improved so much in my condition. It's like, as my hair grew, I got better. So there weren't that many accommodations for me, actually. Like, yes, there were the moments where I would say like, I can't go to, I can't go to rehearsal tonight because I have treatment. But I think you're, I think you're looking towards an answer in terms of like a rehearsal accommodation, like being with the instrument. I think I mean in general, because an accommodation can mean many different things for different, 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 different disabilities and experiences. Mm -hmm. So there would be moments where I'd be taking steroids because something that's regular with chemotherapy is that you take steroids sometimes alongside your treatment because what the steroids do is that they purposefully make you a little bit weaker so that the chemotherapy is more um, effective. It's unfortunate that chemotherapy is just medical poison. I don't, a lot of people, especially doctors and nurses don't like it when I use that word, but that's essentially what it is. It's medical poison. And I hated being on steroids because they would make me break out. They'd make me hungry and they'd make me angry. I hated him so much. So the anger part, that's the part that gets to me the most. I would get super duper emotional on my steroids. So whenever I'd mess up more than usual, when I'd be taking steroids, I'd have to really, really, it would take a lot of effort for me to rationalize my emotions. If I messed up a passage a bunch of times before if I weren't taking steroids, I'd brush it off. I'd be like, okay, okay, take a break from it. You could do it. On steroids, I'd start crying. I'd start ripping on myself, just say absolutely very hateful things about myself. And it's gotten easier now that I've gotten like accustomed to the steroids. And, but at, at the beginning, I didn't understand that it was my steroids that were making me think like that. So I would get upset. And then after the next couple of days, I'd encounter the same passage again after my steroids have, are out of my system. And I'd be like, why did I react that way at first? Why did I react that way? But when I'd have those moments of anger in my rehearsal, I remember, again, my body language. The conductor was very, very accommodating to me. And I appreciate them for that to know when to and when not to ask more of me because I was a guest in the ensemble. I wasn't considered an actual student at the university where I was participating in the ensemble. So he was being a good host to me and under, being understanding that I got a lot, lot going on. And later I found out actually that someone close to him very very close to him also went through cancer treatment 
So I feel like it's very important to educate. It shouldn't have to take somebody whose life has been incredibly affected by cancer for somebody to be empathetic towards other people who are going through the same thing. I think that that also brings in about like the inaccessibility of knowledge about disabilities rather than just like the stigma that comes with it rather than this is what it actually is. And honestly, disabled people don't need to spend their time explaining it to you because we're going through enough things. Exactly. And I think that that's exactly, exactly. it. Like, yes. Explaining the illness. That's another thing that I absolutely would like to do when I do enter uh, music therapy because me 18 years old 19 years old 20 years old those are those are the ages that I was and am while going through leukemia treatment now my parents their first language is Spanish they don't know much English so when doctors would come in to explain the medicine that they would give medicine medical poison I like to say when they were explaining the medicine that they were giving to me they I would have to translate those things to my parents. I felt, I understand this is my situation in particular. It should be the other way around. My parents should have to explain to me what's going on. And that was a lot for me to handle because not only am I in that present moment reacting to what they told me, like they're telling me this medicine is going to make your hair fall out. This medicine's going to make you super duper weak. This medicine's going to have it that you don't feel your fingers. This medicine's just going to do all these terrible things to you, but it'll get rid of your cancer, hopefully. And then I have to go in and explain it again to my parents. Now, imagine me being 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old. That was hard enough for me as a young adult, a put together young adult. Now imagine somebody half my age having to do that because their parents don't speak English. That breaks my heart to think. And so not only do I want to be a translator for future patients, I just want to be a translator from patient to doctor because doctor language is completely different than patient language. Because doctors know the side effects that are listed on their little textbooks, but until that medicine is in somebody and whatever the heck happens to them, it could be something that's not in the textbook, but they'll feel it and they shouldn't be invalidated just because they have, the doctors have never seen it before. Well, it's also like, this also breaches into like the like inaccessibility in general in a lot of locations, especially like especially in hospitals there are so many different kinds of people in hospitals from so many different places and I don't understand why there aren't translators that are easily payable into the hospital when it's needed I think that that would make more sense because it's not like we don't have people who are immigrants or people who came here from a different country or people who's you know in your situation people whose parents don't really speak that much English and it's not really uncommon especially in the United States and I don't understand why we don't just pay in translators to actually come in to the hospitals to do that yeah it's a very unfortunate thing because I remember multiple times a translator was offered to my family throughout my whole cancer uh, my chemo process but it was like we had to be on their schedule 
It's just, I can't control when I do, when I am and am not ready to translate things to my parents. It just sort of happens. And then, you know, you wait an hour for them to come and you're never even guaranteed that it'll be the Spanish that my parents will understand because Spanish in particular, there's so many different dialects with it. My parents are from El Salvador. So their Spanish would be very different from somebody from, let's say, Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic or even Mexico. There's one Spanish does not cover it all, which is why I felt like I had to be the one to translate it because I speak the Spanish that they speak. If somebody comes in speaking um, even like broken college Spanish, they would understand less if I were to do it, even if I'm like all hocked up on medications, I would still explain it better. It's just unfortunate that Spanish is one of those tricky situations. It's not like a one size fits all kind of deal. So that's where I feel like hospitals, they kind of avoid it. They either just have one translator that's being pulled in all sorts of different directions or just not offer one at all because there's just, it's a lot to cover when it comes to Spanish, but I remember in my, in, oh, go on. Or it just should be like a built-in thing, honestly. Like, sorry, my brain is trying to process that, you know, because it's like that not everyone speaks English. (laughs) It should seriously be a more accessible thing as a whole. Yeah, I, I agree as well. It's just, no, I was just thinking about how frustrating that was. It makes me want to help because Latinos, Latinx communities, we are the largest minority group. And at the same time, there's so many things that are inaccessible to us. It's so unfortunate. Like I never had to go through what my parents went through to get to this country, but I am a first generation American. And I feel as though it is the duty of my generation to make those things accessible. And I'll do that. That's, that's what I feel like my purpose is. With my adoration for music, I have found what I want to do with my life, along with all the injustice that my parents have suffered and the injustice that I have suffered. Um, so as we're reaching the end of the podcast and realizing we've been talking for I don't even know how many minutes (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't really keeping track um but as we're reaching the end is there so is there anything that you would literally like to tell anybody who could possibly be in your situation who might be going through leukemia going through treatment who may be a musician that's in the same situation a BIPOC individual, literally anything, what kind of advice would you give them and what would you tell them? This one's going to go out to all my cancer patients from 2020 and 2021. If you can beat cancer in a global pandemic, there's nothing in this world that you cannot do. That's something I tell myself nearly every day whenever I start feeling an inch a shred of self-doubt i beat cancer during the coronavirus pandemic i'm beating cancer during the coronavirus pandemic you're a badass
and keep being a badass and just don't forget it because that's something that you will connect for the rest of your life. Nothing will ever be challenging to you ever again. And you will have the best attitude for the rest of your life, knowing what you achieved in 2020, 2021, 2019, however long this pandemic lasts. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for coming on and talking thank you to for me. Having me. And, and I learned a lot about different communities and leukemia. Like I didn't know a lot about leukemia until we started talking about it. And I was like, oh, that's good to know. So I enjoy doing these because they're educational to me too. Um, and to everyone who's listening, definitely check out this week's podcast. Check out all of the other podcasts because there are so many wonderful people that come on to talk and just as wonderful as the person I had on this week, talk about their experiences and everything. And let's just definitely keep representing ourselves and definitely tune in for the next podcast. And thank you for listening. And thank you for coming on again. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. I really love being able to talk about it. I always go on this rant with a ton of people, but I never get to go through every, every one of my thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts about it. (laughs) I get that. So thank you and um, thank you for coming on and everyone else definitely tune into all the other podcasts and have a great week.